Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm starting to get corona fatigue, and I bet you are too. Our family has been sheltering at home for seven weeks when we returned from a non-vacation back in mid-March, and my kids miss their friends. I miss my friends. I miss going to church. I miss going on work trips and just doing the things that were normal for our life, and I'm guessing that you do too. And of course, there have been some real losses in this season. We've missed birthdays. We've missed graduations and funerals. We've missed you know, seeing people who are hurting, have not being able to be at the bedside of those who are sick. We have friends who've had COVID and recovered, but we also have friends who have lost family members to COVID. So there have been some just hard things of not seeing people and not having our normal way of life, but there's also been some significant loss in this season. But if your family is like mine, we've also had just a ton of of privilege, just a ton of opportunities that many people around the world don't have. I mean, we have iPads and laptops and plenty of food in our pantry. We're having slower meals around the table. Our family's together. Our family is healthy. There's not abuse in our home. My kids can go to school. I can go to work online. I mean, there's so many ways that our family is thriving in the midst of what is a difficult season because we have so much privilege and we have so much wealth. And I'm guessing that describes my typical listener as well. Well, here's what I want to consider on this episode of all things. This is a pandemic. So just that pan means everything. Pan means the whole globe. This is something that the whole globe is going through together at the same time. Whenever before in your life or mine, have we been a part of something that has affected the entire globe? When else has there been a time when you and I are facing the same thing as men and women in Asia, Africa, Australia, South America, Europe, you know, certainly we are not facing it in the same way as I just described in my introduction, but we're facing facing the same disease. We're facing the same germ. We have the same concerns in some ways about our own health and our families and our economy. So we're all experiencing COVID at the same time, but we're experiencing it, experiencing it in different ways. So here's what I've been thinking about. What if we as Christians in the United States or we as Christians in the wealthy West, what if instead of focusing primarily on our own experiences, what's hard specifically for me, like what I am missing, what if, um, you know, instead of thinking about how I want my government to respond, my county, my state, my country, or my church, what if I instead spent some time and energy thinking about how my brothers and sisters around the world, how the globe is facing this pandemic? Now, I know it's important to consider those other things. You know, I think all things things are worth evaluating through a Christian lens. And I would encourage you to do that. But if you're like me, you've probably spent a lot of time just thinking about yourself, your condition, your family, what you would like to see, how you want things to change, what's been hard for you. And so over the last couple of weeks, I've just been trying to lift my eyes up off of myself and off of my own situation and ask what is happening around the world? What's going on on other continents? How are other people living through the same pandemic that I am living through? So it's in that spirit that I just want to share with you some research that I've done. I've been pouring over headlines and news for the last couple weeks, just collecting news stories and statistics from all over the world to better understand how are people handling this pandemic all around the world. And I'm asking the Lord to help me practice empathy. I'm asking him to help me really visualize what it must be like to be somebody in the com- one of these communities that's around my country and around the gl- globe and how I might be praying for them, how I might be giving to organizations that are alleviating some of their suffering. So that's what this episode's 
going to be. We are going to plow through just some stories and some some statistics about what life is like for various communities in the U.S. as well as around the world so that you and I are just better informed about how this pandemic that we're all facing at the same time is affecting different people groups. So I'm going to start a little bit closer to home and I'm going to start by talking about the homeless population here in the United States. Well, you probably know homeless shelters are full or they're closed or if they're open, there's just too much risk of getting or spreading COVID there. So homeless populations aren't really going into the shelters if they're even open. Because they're largely closed, the homeless population has very little access, sometimes no access to toilets or bathrooms or shelters, you know, libraries, gyms, fast food restaurants, they're all closed. Homeless people who are employed have been laid off and they can't panhandle because there's nobody out on the streets who might be able to give them any money. Soup kitchens are closed or they're out of food and soup kitchen staff and volunteers aren't really coming into work because they're at home caring for their own families. So not only are our homeless brothers and sisters battling where to sleep, where to go to the bathroom, where to get a shower, where to wash their hands, but they're also disproportionately suffering from things like lung disease, heart disease, hypertension, cancer. All those things are high risk for people when they get coronavirus. Many homeless, including about 80% of women, suffer from a serious medical condition, poor mental health, and drug addiction all at the same time. So obviously for those who are homeless, this pandemic is very um, dangerous for them. Okay, next population, the Native American population. Native American reservations across the United States are suffering much more than other populations. For example, the Navajo Nation, which spans New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah, if it were a state in and of itself, it would be near the top of the list in terms of the number of cases and deaths per capita. Those who live on the Navajo Nation have very limited access to healthcare. Patients who are sick have had to be flown to near nearby hospitals in nearby cities. Of the 55,000 homes located on the Navajo reservation, 15,000 don't have electricity or running water. Can you imagine? Only about 60% have internet connections from their home, so their children can't go to school. People can't work at home if that's even an option. And 30%, a third of the people live below the poverty line, obviously compounding all of the negative consequences of COVID. Okay, how about the African-American community here in the United States? The impact of coronavirus on the black community has been pretty extreme. Almost one third of infections across the United States have affected black Americans, even though they only represent 13% of our population. So 13% of our population, and yet 30% of infections have been Black Americans. In Wisconsin, 30% of coronavirus deaths have been among African Americans, even though they only make up 6.7% of the state's population. In D.C., in our nation's capital, 81% of COVID fatalities have been African American, but they're only 46% of the population. And in Chicago, it's been 50% of the death, 56% of the deaths have been African American. So here's a quote that I thought was helpful. Dr. Celia Maxwell, she's an infectious disease physician and associate dean at Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C. This is what she said. With persons of color and African-Americans specifically, there are so many issues they are dealing with. Health, socioeconomic, poverty, education, and systemic racism. With all those things together, it doesn't surprise me that these patients would be more vulnerable to something like COVID-19. It's the healthcare disparity that's driving this epidemic. African-Americans already suffer higher rates of the eight out of top 13 causes of death in the United States. So COVID is just really compounding that. 
there are more African Americans who work in the service industries, jobs that are considered essential. You know, they are being exposed probably to other people who are infected more than those of us that can work from home. They might be using public transportation more to get to work. There's perhaps a lack of access to early testing. I'm reading about a lot of stories that have to do with that. And then there's just the historical distrust of the healthcare system in our country because of previous bias and discrimination. All right, Asian Americans. Well, you may have seen this in the headline, but a report came out just this past week that says Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders across the U.S. have reported more than 1,500 incidents of racism and discrimination related to COVID in the past month. So just in the past month, 1,500 incidents of racism and discrimination related to COVID-19 for our Asian American brothers and sisters. How about the prison population? While it's impossible to maintain social distancing behind bars, according to various reports, there's a shortage of masks and soap and cleaning supplies in a number of our prisons around the country. To force social distancing, many prisons have stopped visitation and they've locked detainees in cells for up to 23 hours a day to limit the amount of time in common areas. Now, I know it's been hard for me to be in my own home, but can you imagine being in one single jail cell for 23 hours a day? The infection rate is high amongst immigrants who are being held by ICE. So about 2% of the 32,000 immigrants that are currently being detained by ICE have been tested and 50% of those tests are coming back positive. So a lot of our detained immigrants are infected with COVID. In four U.S. state prisons, nearly 3,300 inmates have tested positive for coronavirus. 96% of those inmates did not have symptoms. So in other words, the majority of them in those four prisons have COVID but don't have symptoms. As of this past Tuesday, more than 330 inmates at Rikers Island in New York were diagnosed with COVID-19. 330 inmates in one prison. Of course, there's been district attorneys and jail officials and defense attorneys working to release inmates who are considered low risk. But a Wall Street Journal article from this past week says that Rikers Island jail guards are now dying. They are passing away from COVID-19. So obviously the outbreak ran loose at Rikers Island and now we are seeing deaths from that. How about poor Americans? More than 30 million people in the United States have filed for unemployment. Just this morning, our church delivered food to a local food bank. Now, here I am in just suburban America, but at this local food bank, a free food market, they call it, they normally serve 150 families a week. Their staff told me this morning, last week they served 800 families. So there's a huge increase. Week in and week out, they're serving eight to 900 families a week, who families that need food who haven't needed it before. How about our physically and developmentally disabled brothers and sisters in the United States? Well, I read that 80%, 80 to 100% of those who have developmental or physical disabilities have lost their jobs due to the outbreak. So this is very disruptive for this particular population. It's confusing and it's discouraging. They have lost daily rhythms and ways of life. They've just been taken away from them. Now, of course, they've got caretakers if they live in a group home and their caretakers have had to shelter in place with them to take care of them, to provide for their food and other things that they cannot provide on their own. Now, these caretakers have left their own family. They've left their own parents, their own spouses, their own children to provide continuing care for those who are physically and developmentally disabled. Similar story for those with Alzheimer's and dementia, and of course, those who are living in nursing homes. How about cruise ship workers? You know, we've had so many headlines about cruise ships. Well, what about the workers who come from, you know, economies all over the world to make a wage on a cruise ship? Well, if you can believe it, there are a hundred thousand cruise ship workers still on 50 ships with COVID outbreaks on the ships, limited medical equipment. Some are not getting pay 
and there's no end in sight, and they're not allowed to port in other countries, in any countries. Port, they are not allowed allowing the ships to dock. How about the meatpacking industry? That's been in the headlines this past week. 20 meatpacking workers have died nationwide, and another 5,000 have been infected or they're showing symptoms for COVID-19. So meatpacking plants across the country have closed. A lot of them have closed because the infections are spreading rapidly between workers who stand shoulder to shoulder on those production lines. So for example, Smithfield Foods in South Dakota, where more than 800 workers have confirmed cases of COVID, they have had to shut down. Two people there have died. The plant shut down in mid-April. Well, President Trump this past week employed the Defense Production Act to classify meat processors as critical So there's a concern that all these meat plants are um, shutting down, and so we're not going to have meat to buy. The grocery store shelves are going to be empty. So Trump employed the Defense Production Act and said, you have to stay open. But who knows if they'll have enough workers to to keep these plants open. And just as a side note, that meatpacking plant in South Dakota is largely comprised of Ethiopian immigrants who work there. So this is an essential job employed by Ethiopian immigrants. Immigrants are apparently essential for our way of life. President Trump issued an executive order last week temporarily halting immigration to the United States. But the reality is that immigrants play a critical role in the frontline efforts against this crisis. Last year, Harvard Medical School found that immigrants make up one in four healthcare workers in the U.S. Now, when my father was sick and dying from Alzheimer's and dementia, you better believe that in nursing home where he lived was all immigrants, staffed by all immigrants. And Harvard says, yes, one in four healthcare workers is an immigrant. In the U.S. food supply chain, one in five workers is an immigrant. Foreign-born workers make up one in six grocery store workers, and more than one-fourth of food processing workers, and more than one-fourth of agricultural workers are immigrants. So bottom line, immigrants are essential in this fight against COVID and for our way of life here in the United States. Okay, so let's move on to a global perspective. That's kind of what's happening here in the U.S., but with this discussion of immigrants, let's move overseas. So Singapore is an interesting study, um, an interesting country to study. Singapore provides an illustration of the vulnerability of immigrants or migrant workers in this pandemic. In the early days of the pandemic, Singapore was like a poster child. They were like an amazing example of how to keep COVID under control. Well, now that's not true anymore. It's now the site of one of the worst outbreaks in Southeast Asia. Here's what happened. In early February, a 39-year-old Bangladeshi national, one of almost a million foreign laborers in Singapore, he developed symptoms of the coronavirus. He visited a clinic. He visited a hospital. He was sent home both times. Well, he lives in a dormitory for migrant workers where where men sleep about 10 to a room and they share toilets and they share cooking spaces. He also visited a 24-hour mall that's popular with both migrants and locals. He was finally admitted to a hospital and tested positive for the virus. So he was considered Singapore's patient number 42 and he was the first patient among low-wage foreign workers. Well, infections among migrant laborers now in Singapore account for more than 70% of the country's infections and there's thousands, thousands and thousands of people in Singapore now have COVID. 70 percent of them, though, are these low-wage foreign workers. They make up one-fifth of the overall population, but they live separately from the local community. So they live 
in these dormitories, which have been reported to be in disrepair and just poor condition, bad hygiene. So they live separately from the country's affluent population, and yet 70% of them, 70% of the infections in the country are among these migrant workers. So again, there's this disparity between local populations and migrant populations. I don't know if it's a lack of concern, a lack of awareness. Somehow there's this inability to care for the migrant population in the same way. And this would be true around the world. It's not just Singapore. It's not just the United States, but we have to remember as Christians, God loves the sojourner. His heart is for the foreigner. His heart is for the weak. Let's move on to refugees. Well, here's just a snapshot. In Greece, there are about 60,000 refugees that live in camps across the country. I mean, you know, when the migration crisis happened a few years ago, it was all over the headlines. We're not really seeing it anymore, but the reality is those refugees still live in camps all across Europe. At least 20 refugees in a camp in Athens have tested positive for the virus, and so the camp has been locked down. That's Greece. Well, in Jordan, there are 120,000 Syrian refugees living in a couple camps that have been on lockdown since March 21st. So can you just imagine being locked down, sheltering in place in a plastic tent for the last six weeks? And these are just two refugee populations from many around the world. Here's why refugees and displaced people are especially vulnerable to the coronavirus. This is according to Refugees International. Here's the reasons. Population density and shared facilities makes social distancing extremely difficult, if not impossible. They have difficulty accessing basic needs, let alone intensive care that's needed if they get the disease. There's limited access to information. So a lot of times there's no Wi-Fi, there's no way to get information, there's no news. And then there's, of course, there's language barriers and distrust of local authorities. We have a globally stretched humanitarian supply. Governments aren't really able to help. They're not be able to help with travel and and provide supplies in these camps. And of course, there's strains on the finances of the governments and the nonprofits that normally help care for refugees. There's the Muslim Rohingya population in Bangladesh. So over 900,000 Rohingya left the violence and the persecution they were enduring in Buddhist Myanmar. Now this is one, one of those refugees says, we are living in tiny crowded shelters. We are sharing toilets. It's very difficult to protect ourselves. It's too crowded. People can't breathe well. So this is a population, almost a million people who fled on foot with nothing but the clothes on their back, fleeing violence. And now they're in these tents. They can't breathe well. They don't have the resources that they need. In Syria, where 6.1 million people have been displaced, a 33-year-old man who has lived in a refugee camp for five years said this, we don't wash our hands because water is in short supply. Gloves and masks are not available. And if they are available, they're very expensive. In Burkina Faso in Western Africa, there's a huge camp housing 75,000 people who have fled a jihadist insurgency. They live in wood-framed tents that are covered with straw mats or white tarps, and they live right next to each other. The virus has infected over 150 people and killed eight people in that particular camp, but they have very little water and um, sanitary supplies, so it's making it difficult to stay clean. Families of up to 10 people share five gallons of water a day. How can you stay clean under those circumstances? Let's talk about vulnerable children around the globe. So according to International Justice Mission, IJM, an organization that I highly commend to you, there has been an increase around the world in violence in the home against women and children, trafficking 
and online sexual exploitation, especially of children. So according to IJM in the Philippines, reports of child sexual exploitation are up by an average of 30% around the world. So apparently social media, video, and messaging platforms have been flooded with child sexual exploitation material, child pornography. This pandemic means that people are spending more time online at home, and it's leading to a greater demand for this type of content. It grieves me to say this, but the field officer in the Philippines with IGM says this, child sex offenders are not satisfied viewing the same old materials over and over again. They want to see new photos and videos of children being sexually abused with escalating violence. He notes that in more than 60% of cases, the local trafficker is a family member or a close family friend. It's so awful to think about, but it's something that we have to be aware of is happening. Well, let's move on to Africa. Africa as a continent has not suffered a huge impact yet, but that will probably change soon. Across the continent, the UN is concerned about the infrastructure of some of the biggest cities across the continent where the majority of the urban population lives in overcrowded neighborhoods and they don't have reliable access to hand-washing facilities. So there's just a low supply of hospital beds and 71% of the continent's workforce is informally employed, informally employed. That means they don't work for a formal employer. They're doing like a day's wage, a day's labor for a day's wage. 71% of the whole continent is informally employed. The whole continent is very, very vulnerable. And if the food supply chain is interrupted, there could be a famine. Similar concerns range across Asia. So let's talk about the global poor, just those who are in poverty around the whole world. They are truly existing, their, their existence is fragile. It is frail. They are in a very fragile situation. Most are at risk. Many of these people who are at risk are at risk because like I just said, they're informally employed. 2 billion people have no access to benefits like unemployment assistance or healthcare. So 2 billion people around the world are informally employed, meaning they don't have an employer who gives them benefits or takes care of them. These are factory jobs. These are garment workers. These are people who have a job where they make a day's wage to feed their family on that day. Experts say that for the first time since 1998, global poverty is going to increase. At least a half billion people could slip into destitution by the end of the year. So going back to Bangladesh, there are 1 million garment workers in Bangladesh. 7% of the country's workforce is a garment worker. The story of one woman I read about is that she's a garment worker. She cannot work right now because the garment um, factory is closed. She would make a daily wage to feed her family, but now she's in debt with her local grocer. She's just been trying to provide one very small meal a day to her family of roti and mashed potato, and she can no longer even afford that. So for countries like Bangladesh, the fallout is going to last even longer than this virus because their poor governments are no, that have, have risen out of abject poverty over the last several years are now going to go back into poverty because, and not be able to pay for things like education and healthcare. So these gains that we've made over the last several years are going to be lost. So like, for example, in India, where 210 million people were lifted out of poverty from 2006 to 2016, according to the UN, those people are probably going to go back into poverty. The progress is going to be reversed because the governments and anti-poverty programs just are not going to be able to handle it. In South America, very similar story. And these realities are exacerbated in countries that are oil dependent. They have economies that are oil dependent, countries like Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador. The global fall of oil prices is likely to worsen their already very frail state. 
In Latin America, the working class has been unable to work for six weeks. The governments have been slow or unable to deliver emergency help, and unrest is growing. This is what one worker said, one woman who sells surgical masks and coffee in an open-air market on the Colombian-Venezuelan border. She says, I would rather die of the virus than of hunger. If I miss a day of work, my family doesn't eat. It's not bravery. It's desperation. So they have shelter-in-place orders. They are meant to be on lockdown there. But if she doesn't go out and work, she cannot feed her family. Just a week ago in Venezuela, hungry protesters raided shops and open-air markets in riots that were put down violently by police and armed gangs. There have been hunger-driven protests in more than 15 other Venezuelan cities. There are acute gasoline shortages, and that has disrupted the food supply in a country that's already in crisis. In Colombia, there are nearly nightly protests in some neighborhoods, and in the capital of Bogota, citizens hang red cloths in their window to show that they need help, that they are hungry. Well, you know widely what's happening across Europe, I would imagine. France, Italy, and Spain have all been in the headlines. We have friends who live all across the country, and we're, we've heard stories over the last couple of months about their lockdowns that have been in place since February. Many of those lockdowns are very strict. There's curfews. You can't go out late at night. You have to have a piece of paper that you were able to print by government permission, showing your address and where you're going. I mean, the lockdowns in Europe have been much more strict than what we're experiencing here in the United States. But I want to end with one story coming out of Eastern Europe from some colleagues of ours. And this is just a bright story that I want to share. There are some, we have colleagues who are working in Eastern Europe. They've had a media presence there in a Muslim context. So sharing the truth of Jesus Christ, sharing the truth of scripture of the gospel in a Muslim context in Eastern Europe. Well, over the last few weeks, they have seen a 616% increase in people visiting their webpage, watching their videos about the gospel, and requesting for Bibles. People are asking, are reaching out, emailing, asking questions about spiritual truths in this predominantly Muslim context. So praise God, there is a spiritual hunger in that particular context. And I imagine that is true around the globe. People are hurting, people are suffering, and they're crying out to God. And my prayer is that they may find him. So friends, I'm going to wrap this episode up. I know it's been very long and I have barely scratched the surface of what's going on around the globe. And my hope is that these stories, these statistics, and these anecdotes would not make you feel guilty. It's not so that we can compare our situation to theirs and go, well, it could be worse, but it's to just remind us of what our neighbors, those in our cities, those in around our country, those around the globe, what they're going through. It's so easy for me. And I imagine it's easy for you to be self-focused. It's so easy for me to look at my family, my home, my church, my government, my county, but let's lift our eyes and remember what is going on around us, outside our homes, outside our country. How can we, in this particular situation, love God and love neighbor? And I know these statistics are overwhelming. Don't let this information paralyze you, but let it energize you. May it cause you to look at the map and pray. May it cause you, to, as you read headlines, to pray. May it cause you to give generously to organizations around the world that are serving these very vulnerable populations. May it cause you to give freely to those who are in your immediate context and to just be, you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory, to be Jesus to your neighborhood, but also as you give generously and pray vehemently for those who are around the globe. Thanks for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. 